Here's the word of God for us this morning, Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Pray with me, friends. Lord, again I say thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for all of the help that we've had today to be able to worship you. Thank you for a family that will come up and read scripture and remind us of glorious truths as we look forward to the hope of the celebration of the coming of Christ. Thank you for every good gift. Thank you for children in the room. Thank you for a place to meet. Thank you for your promises. Help us now, God, to be strong, to hear your word, and to respond with joy. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. So let's tell the story of the Bible, huh? The true story of God and his eternal plan. Before there was time, God chose he was going to redeem a people for himself out of humanity. It's funny, Anthony read that for us in our doctrinal lesson today. We didn't plan any of this. This we call the covenant of redemption or the pactum. Then in the beginning, God created. And of all that God made, well, you guys tell me, what was God's favorite thing he made? People, right? God made people, his favorite thing. He made mankind in his image. And humanity's task is going to be to exercise dominion on the earth as God's regents. And and humanity was to call all creation to worship the Almighty. Well, in his relationship with God, the first man had one And only one simple rule, do not eat of one particular tree in the garden. And had Adam obeyed, he would have lived under the blessing of God forever himself and his offspring. Violation of that stipulation would would mean death. This we call the covenant of works. Whenever you have a obey and live, disobey and die, in a covenant, that's a covenant of works. The, it's also called the Adamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam. Well, Adam, as the representative of all mankind, chose to rebel against God. He earned death for himself. He earned death for all of humanity. And because Adam was our representative, when Adam disobeyed, we, meaning you and me, We disobeyed too. And in that moment, God could have chosen to wipe out humanity. God could have chosen to start over fresh from scratch. 
But God was going to accomplish the plan that he made before there was time. His plan to redeem a people for himself. Thus, even as God pronounced the hardships that would come into the world because of Adam's sin, God hinted at the promise of the Savior to come. When God spoke to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, as time marched on, Humanity became more and more rebellious against God. Eventually, God justly punished the world with destruction because of the evil of mankind. But God, in keeping with his original plan, had mercy on Noah. God kept Noah and his family alive while the rest of creation suffered the horrors of the global flood, which was part of our Advent reading with the Montenegro family this morning. And God covenanted with Noah that though humanity did not deserve it, God would, I mean, sorry, God covenanted with Noah that even if humanity does deserve it, he's not going to destroy the world again until he at least accomplishes his eternal plan of redemption. So even now, even today, every time you see a rainbow, and by the way, I don't care if it's in the sky or if it's somebody misusing it, Every time you see a rainbow, you should allow yourself to remember that creation is sustained by God's power and mercy, even though we've all learned his wrath. Well, not long after Noah, humanity again united in rebellion against God by building a tower at Babel. God could have destroyed all of humanity right then because of our sin, but the Lord promised that he wasn't going to do that. Instead, God confused the people's languages. He gave them a variety of languages. And in a single moment of mercy, God made it so that no single leader would have the ability to so sway the actions of all humanity that all humanity would march against God as a unified whole, at least not until the end. And then a new question. Just which of all these many nations, which people group would be the one to carry forward the promise of God. The answer we found in Genesis chapter 12, when God chose Abram, later named Abraham. God promised Abraham blessing, offspring, land, and dominion. From a this-worldly, works-based, sort of fleshy-based angle, God said he's going to bless Abraham, give him a lot of descendants, and he's going to give his descendants dominion over the promised land so long as Abraham and his descendants would obey God's command to continue marking their male children with the covenant sign of circumcision. Unilaterally, one-sidedly, In the promise, God promised Abraham that he would have descendants, they would go captive for four centuries, and they would come back into the land and would take over. God said, I'm going to do this no matter what. But spiritually, from a broader angle, a deeper angle, God promised, covenanted, that Abraham would have one particular descendant who would be the ultimate embodiment of blessing offspring, land, and dominion. God promised that someone born into Abraham's line would be a blessing to all nations. 
Genesis 12 verse 3 ends with the phrase, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 22, 18 begins, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The one to come, God was telling Abraham, would be the true offspring of Abraham, and he would bring many people into Abraham's family. He would rule the whole world, not just Canaan, as a king forever. But we're getting ahead of the story with that last bit. What about sin and death? What about the need of humanity to be perfect, to be in the presence of God? Because what was the covenant with Adam? Obey and live, disobey and die. Adam disobeyed, we're all dead. Well, the Lord showed us in his interaction with Abraham that we have to be made righteous not by us doing good works. You have never been okay with God because you did any good deed. Do you guys all understand that? You know, that is the, the purest definition of legalism is to believe you can make yourself right with God by obeying and earning righteousness. None of us can obey to be right with God. Abram would not be made right with God through his obedience, but instead through something given to him from outside himself. If you want to be right with God, it has to be because God gives you something good from outside of you. Genesis 15, 6, speaking of Abraham, says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God treated Abraham as if he had been righteous, though Abram had never personally lived out perfection. And God did it because Abram believed the promise of God. Thus, we've already been given a hint that God will grant his forgiveness not to people who act well, not to people that follow the rules per se, not that the rules are bad, but to those who, who are willing to trust him. And God carried his promise forward through Abraham and his son Isaac. From a physical, this worldly perspective, Isaac is going to carry the national, political land promises forward. But contained somewhere inside Isaac's family tree is the true promise, the big promise, the spiritual promise of God. This is where we left off last week. Does that sound moderately familiar to you guys? Oh, good. The people up front are paying attention. I have no idea about you people in the back. We've got a lot of ground to cover if we're going to make it to the next major covenant because it's the covenant at Mount Sinai, the covenant with Israel under Moses. So we're going to start, I'm going to lay the groundwork here for the setting of the Mosaic covenant. Genesis tells us Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Later, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Now, of Esau and Jacob, let me ask you guys, which of the two will carry the big promise forward? Jacob. No Esau votes? All right. Jacob carries the promise. God said Jacob would carry the promise. And Jacob has 12 sons. 
the fathers who became, these men became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God says, of the 12 tribes, the promised one, the promised king, the promised ruler is going to come from the tribe of which one? Judah. Judah. Good job. It's going to descend from the family line of Judah. And then the end of Genesis tells us the story of the one son, Joseph, how God moved the family of Jacob, the descendants of Abraham, all the way down into the land of Egypt, and there they remained for four centuries. Now here's what's fun. Remember what the Egyptians thought about the family of Abraham, the Israelites? Because they were livestock herders, they were shepherds. The Egyptians thought they were icky. And because the Egyptians thought they were icky, they gave them this land and said, you guys stay in your own little land with all your icky people because we don't like you. And what that did is it prevented the Egyptians from mingling with the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel lived in Egypt for four centuries with no outside nations trying to change the way they thought, change the way they believed, change the way they worshipped change their obedience to the commands of God. Living in Egypt for the people of Israel was like an incubator that allowed the family to grow into a nation. And then it was time for God to keep one of the major promises that he had made to Abraham. After four centuries, when the nation of Israel had grown large, the leader of Egypt began to fear the strength of the people. Pharaoh determined, I'm going to make the Israelites my slaves. I'm going to decrease their population. I'm going to murder their children. But one very special baby survived. His name was Moses. Now, if you've watched the movies, cartoon or otherwise, you know about baby Moses floating in a little basket in the reeds in the Nile River. You know about Pharaoh's daughter taking him in as her own son, adopting him, Moses growing up in the palace. You might even know about Moses' choice to reject the splendor of living as an Egyptian royal. And instead, he wanted to try to protect the Israelites. And that, of course, led to his need to run away from Egypt for a time. Turn now to Exodus chapter 2. We'll spend our time primarily in Exodus today. As this story unfolds, it's going to be toward the end of the chapter, I want you to see the tight connection between what God does in Egypt and the covenant that God made with Abraham. You've got to see that these flow perfectly together. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died... And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What I want you to notice here is when you see God tie himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's a tie to the covenant that we see in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the promises of Genesis 12 and 22. So now flip over to Exodus 3. 
Here we see the call of God on Moses. Because you remember, God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. And the covenant language just rings in your ears if you know how to catch it. Exodus 3, verses 4 to 6. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush. God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Don't you, want, don't you want to know the tone of voice that he had for right that? I bet it wasn't as manly as you think. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. God speaks with Moses. And do you notice when God identifies himself, he connects who he is to the line of promise from the covenant with Abraham. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As the scene progresses later, God will call himself, I am who I am. Then, God will call himself the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God. Then down in verses 16 and 17, God promises, I'm going to bring the people up out of Egypt and into the land of promise, the very thing God covenanted to do with Abraham in Genesis 15. If you want to see the connection here, you could also read sometime later, Exodus 6 verses 2 to 8, and you see the same connection to the same covenants by God. Now here's a question that should ring in the ears, especially of any first-time Bible reader. Could Moses be the one? Huh? Huh? He was in a little box on the water, kind of like Noah was. Noah almost was the one, but he wasn't. Maybe, maybe, maybe Moses is the promised rescuer, right? The, the Savior hinted at in Genesis 3. The answer is no. Moses would not be. How long does it take us to find out? Well, in chapter 4, verses 24 to 26, we won't read them this morning. At the very beginning of his ministry, on his way down to Egypt, Moses nearly dies. Why, you ask? Why did Moses almost die? Because God almost killed him. Why would God almost kill Moses? He just called him. Because Moses refused to obey the single command of obedience on the conditional side of the Abrahamic covenant. Moses should have circumcised his son. He didn't do it. And to disobey that command, God says, is for you to be cut off from the people of God So just in case you didn't know, Moses is not the one we've been waiting for. He's not perfect. Now, doesn't mean he won't be useful, but he's not the promised one. Well, for several chapters in Exodus, we follow the miraculous working of God to free the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. God sends a series of ten devastating plagues on the land. And only after the tenth, the most terrible of them all, is Pharaoh willing to let the people of God leave the land of Egypt. You can read Exodus yourself and see the Passover meal and the the plundering of the Egyptians. You can read about the way God parted the Red Sea and brought his people across and then drowned the Egyptian charioteers. 
As the story flies by, God, in fact, led Israel up out of Egypt to a mountain that is sometimes called Horeb, sometimes called Sinai. And thus far, God has been very kind to the nation of Israel. God has, in fact, shown them grace, which means goodness that they could not earn. God rescued the people out of their slavery. And we can imagine they they had to be grateful, but there's probably some questions that need to be answered, wouldn't you think? What is it going to mean for this people, this particular people, to follow God as a nation? In years past, we've only seen God make an agreement with Abraham. In fact, Abraham had one law to follow. Abraham was to see to it that every one of his male children bore the physical sign of the covenant that God made with him. Circumcision. It was a way to see that the nation that descended from Abraham was different than the nations around him. That the people were willing to follow the commands of God that that they could continue under his favor in the land. But things have changed a bit, don't you think? This is not just one household. This is a nation, maybe two, even three million people strong by now. Do you guys think you need different rules when you're 70 people and when you're 3 million people? To a degree, I think you do, don't you? There has to be rules about who gets to be where and what happens when my property comes up against yours that may not happen when there's just one family with one homestead. The principles are the same, but the rules are different. You think there might be different needs for rules for people who are marching through the wilderness than for people who are building houses? Maybe, right? It's about, as a nation, they're about to move into their own land. What's it going to look like for this nation to follow their Lord? God has already established for them a new holy week, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a holy celebration, the Passover, They're supposed to repeatedly celebrate the Passover in memory of God getting them up out of Egypt. God's given them commandments already about how to collect the manna while they travel, that they're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. But what else do the people need to know so that they might live as a nation under the blessing of God? And what is this going to have to do with the spiritual promise of a Savior to come? That's where we have landed. But now that's the setting of the Mosaic Covenant. So that was all introduction. You you still with me? Oh, good. Let's look at the making of the Mosaic Covenant then, huh? Look at 19, uh, Exodus 19. You'd be amazed how many times when I was writing my notes that I wrote the word Genesis for Exodus books, Exodus chapters. I don't know why I have a problem. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So it's been three months after the people escaped their slavery in Egypt. God meets with the people at the mountain, just like he promised. And now it's time for the nation and God to get down to business. God promised them, I'll get you out of Egypt. God promised them, I'm putting you back in the promised land. The question is, what will them living in the land under God look like? So Moses goes up the mountain to have a face-to-face with the Lord. And as with the covenants we've seen before, Moses is the representative for other people. God seems to regularly work this way, right? Adam represented who? All of us. All humanity is represented by Adam. Noah did too. Abraham represents all the people in his family line. He was sort of the Adam for his nation. Well, here's Moses, and now he's kind of playing the Abraham-Adam role for the people. He's representing them before God. Well, in verse 4, we begin the covenant-making process. God first clearly identifies himself and reminds Moses of what his relationship to the nation has been like in the past. When you see covenants made, so often they start with, this is who I am, this is what I've done, we all know who we are, we all know what our relationship with each other has been like. God has been gracious, God has brought the people up out of Egypt as he promised, they saw it, they know it. Then in verses 5 and 6, you begin to see the terms of the covenant that God's going to make with the nation. God says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. I want you to notice something right away. Remember I told you the Abrahamic covenant had two sides. It had a, an unconditional spiritual eternal nature and it had a conditional works-based nature, right? If you look at this verse, do you see something that tells you what kind of covenant this one is? Is this one unconditional or is it conditional? It's conditional. Why? What word tells you it's conditional? If, good job, you guys are smart, you don't need me. There are conditions laid upon Israel if they want to enter into and maintain this covenant relationship with God as a nation. Keep that in mind too, as a nation. This covenant is not a unilateral, unconditional promise. Thus, this is not God promising to send the rescuers we saw in Genesis 3. This is not God promising never again to destroy the earth until the plan is complete like we saw in Genesis 9. Not God promising to lead the people out of Egypt or to bless the world through Abraham's offspring as we saw in Genesis 12, 15, 22. 
This is a very clear relationship between a Lord and his subjects, a ruler and the nation under his rule, who could be under his rule and under his protection. God has been faithful. If the people wish to remain in his favor and under his protection, they need to follow his rules. If the people will obey God, there is going to be tremendous blessing. They're going to be God's treasured possession if they obey. They'll be a kingdom of priests. They'll be a holy, set-apart nation. But the if tells us that should they not obey, they're going to lose that status. Later, Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapters 26 through 28 make this point abundantly and kind of gruesomely clear. God's unconditional promise to Abraham, though, there was an unconditional promise, right? There, there's, there's, what about the unconditional side? This is all conditional. This is kind of scary. God's promise to bless the world through an offspring of Abraham that he was going to bring into the world, someone's going to come down Abraham's family tree, that promise will not be threatened by Israel's obedience or their disobedience. But the relationship of the nation with God is based on their obedience. They're keeping the covenant through their works. Abraham and his descendants will be cut off from God and from the land if they do not follow God's command to circumcise their sons. We saw that in Genesis 17, right? If you don't obey that command, I cut you off from the people. Just the same way, the nation will be cut off from God's favor if they collectively refuse to obey the law of God. Make sense? Okay, Exodus 19, verses 7 and 8. So, Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. You get the picture, right? Here's the contract, guys. Here's the terms of the deal. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. When Moses communicates the basic terms of the covenant to come with the nation, the united people expressed their willingness to be bound by its terms. They agree, if we obey, we get blessing. If we disobey, we get cursing from God. Just out of curiosity, by the way, how would you like that to be your contract? You can be blessed by God if you're a good little boy or a good little girl, but if you're not, you're dead. Any takers? No, please. Then the Lord prepared the people for the ratification of the covenant at the end of 19. They agreed to it. It's time to ratify it. They're supposed to get ready. They're supposed to wash as a sign to be ready to meet their God. They're supposed to avoid going too near the mountain because they know that they're entering into a relationship with a God they can never approach on their own merit. Flip over to, well... I'm going to summarize. Chapters 20 to 23. Chapter 20, God spells out the laws. He tells Moses, these are the laws Israel is going to have to obey if they want to remain in my favor. At the beginning of chapter 20, 
Moses, or God spells out to Moses the base, a basic summary form of the terms of this covenant. And when the people look back on the summary of the covenant, they call the summary the ten words. You and I call that summary what? The Ten Commandments. If Israel as a nation is to remain in the favor of the Almighty, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to love God. They're supposed to not worship false gods. They're supposed to honor God's name sincerely and not falsely. They're supposed to love other people. They're supposed to honor their parents. They're supposed to protect the uh, the rights of other people to life, family, property, reputation, all the rest. That's a summary of a summary. In the center of the summary is the covenant sign. You know what the covenant sign is for the, sign, for the covenant with Moses? It's Sabbath. Exodus 31, 12 and 13. If, you, if you'd never thought about this, I had not thought much about this before. Here's just the proof text. Exodus 31, 12 and 13 says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So remember the the covenant with Noah? There's a sign. Rainbow. Covenant with Abraham? There's a sign. Circumcision. Covenant at Sinai? There's a sign. And it's Sabbath-keeping as a nation. Sabbath for Israel honors God by resting the way God rested on the seventh day. It's a sign of love of neighbor as it gives servants the opportunity to rest too. Well, once the ten words were given, God then speaks to Moses a series of laws about all sorts of basic issues Israel needs to deal with. These laws are all expansions of, extensions of, explanations of how you apply the ten words. God spoke about things related to worship and idolatry, households and servants, marriage and family, crime and punishment, justice and righteousness. God told the people about the required religious festivals. He told them how to, how to deal with the Sabbath day. He even told them how to deal with Sabbath year observances, a thing Israel never, ever, 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 ever did. In truth... Most of the principles that are spelled out in this section aren't new things. Do you know that it would have been a sin for Abraham to commit murder or worship an idol even if he hadn't heard the Ten Commandments because they came years after him? It still would have been wrong. Right? The Bible says that in the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery. You think when Abraham was willing to sell his wife off to Pharaoh that that might not have been a wrong thing? Yeah, these aren't new. But with Abraham, God was also communicating very directly. The sign of circumcision pointed to Abraham's willingness to obey God's commands, all of them. But things get a little different here at Sinai. This is not a single family of a few people. This is a nation of millions. This is not a people living in Egyptian exile. It's a nation traveling as nomads in the wilderness and heading to a land that they will conquer and settle. These laws codify the ways of God for the children of Abraham. What they needed to know in that setting 
how they can obey God so they can remain out from, stay out from under the judgment of God, they can remain in the favor of God. That's what this is all about. But you say, Travis, there's no way from chapters 20 to 23 of Exodus, that's not that much. God doesn't cover everything they need to know. I mean, we know there's Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You saying they didn't need that? God tells them, anything I didn't cover here, listen to the angelic messenger that I'm sending you. And the, the angelic messenger that God is sending to communicate with them his ways, it is the works side of the covenant. Obey and live, disobey and die. Look at Exodus 23, verses 20 to 22, just to see how worksy this is. Let's see how worksy this is. Because this is law, law, law. It's gracious that God gave it, but it is not the covenant of grace. Exodus 23, verses 20 to 22. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Does that feel pretty law worksy to you? Now turn to 24. Because in Exodus 24, we see the covenant ratification ceremony. This is so cool. I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a little heads up here. When you read this and the covenant ratification ceremony, well, let me ask you this. How many of you can think about two things at once? I have no idea whether this is a yes or a no. Can you do it? All right, here's what I want you to do. Russ says he can. We're Sally. No. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe I shouldn't do this. <laughs> Let the thought of the institution of the new covenant in the communion or in, in the Lord's Supper, let it roll around the back of your mind and see if this rings any bells for you. Even as you watch God and the people of Israel ratify their covenant, okay? Exodus 24, starting at verse 3. This is so cool. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, okay, you're right, we can't live up to that. <laughs> nope, they didn't. All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. How many times have they said that now? That's twice. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. That's three. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Doesn't that just make you think about some neat things? We'll talk about it more in a minute. Once God gave Israel the true terms of his relationship with them as a nation, Moses comes back to the people. Here's all the info. Here's all the rules. And for a second and a third time, verses 3, verse 7, the people declare they will be bound as a nation by this works-based covenant. Moses makes sacrifices. He sprinkles the people and the book of the law with the blood. Does this remind you of anything? Like cutting a covenant by walking through the the halves of critters back in Genesis 15, this shows us that the people and their new king, the Lord, will be bound to this covenant and they will face destruction if they don't keep their part of the covenant. And a representative party from the leaders of Israel, they sit down and eat a ceremonial meal celebrating the ratification of the covenant in the presence of the Lord. That's cool. The covenant's ratified. The nation is now legally bound to obey. The people know that they will face destruction if they fail to obey. Let's talk real quick about the implication of this covenant. Oh dear. The covenant with Moses and the, and, and, and the nation at Mount Sinai, it reminds us of the earthly works-based side of the covenant with Abraham. God knew. God knew that the people would not keep his covenant. You know he knew, right? You've never surprised God. And that's why God made provision for things like the building of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus for the implementation of ceremonial law, including animal sacrifice so that the nation could be forgiven in the book of Leviticus. God moves the nation to the border of the promised land in the book of Numbers. And then he prepares the people to enter the promised land by reaffirming, giving a second delivery of the covenant law in the book of Deuteronomy. And through it all, God continually spells out to the nation that if the nation wants to survive, if they want God's protection, if they want to keep their land, they've got to obey his terms. But guys, there's a lot more here than law and land. This covenant is an integral part, integral part of God's carrying out his eternal plan of redemption. Listen to me carefully. You got to get this. Nobody is redeemed. Nobody becomes a true child of God because of the covenant God made at Mount Sinai. There's nothing in that about souls being saved. What the covenant at Sinai does is it puts a protective hedge around the physical nation of Israel The law continues to keep the descendants of Abraham set apart from the neighboring nations. Right? Circumcision, food laws, clothing regulations, things like that. 
They made it so that people from other nations were never confused with the people that God was preserving. My Old Testament prof used to say, God wanted you to be able to spot an Israelite from a mile away. They dressed differently. They ate differently. They grew their crops differently. They weren't allowed to intermarry with other nations. Their bodies were marked. You knew this was the people God was keeping. And even when Israel would turn and rebel against the laws of God, God always preserved enough of them to keep carrying forward his promise of the rescuer to come. Guys, we could never be forgiven by behaving well. Aren't you glad? Do you guys think your behavior is that good? We could never be forgiven through animal sacrifice. There's no animal whose blood is worth as much as my soul has done to offend the Lord. The law says be perfect and live. Fail once and die. We failed when Adam failed. We fail on our own. The laws of God show us we're naturally sinful. The laws of God show us that we need the forgiveness of God. The laws of God show us we cannot achieve the forgiveness of God on our own. The laws of God show us the holy character of God. The laws of God show us what justice and goodness really look like. I want you to be, be sure about this because some Christians miss this. There's not a bad law in the law. You guys know God did not command anything that was sinful in the law, right? If you think that we are so modern today that some of the stuff God commanded way back when, those things are bad and we're better than that, I think you're misreading who you are and who God is. Most importantly, the laws of God point us to Jesus. I'm not saying we need to be bound by the laws of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But I am saying that the laws of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy show us God and point us to Jesus. God promised Abraham that one of his offspring would be someone who blesses not physical Israel alone, but the people from all the nations all over the world. God's law given to Moses preserved the nation of Israel so long, even though they were rebels. They had a sacrificial system. They had a way to be forgiven. They had a way that God would let up on the judgment that they deserved. He was able through that law to preserve that nation alive long enough that the promised one could come into the world at the proper time. The animal sacrifices in the tabernacle hint to us that the one to come would shed his own blood to cover our sin and to present that sacrifice before the throne of God who will eternally redeem God's elect. If you know Jesus, let me urge you to love what you see in the word of God, even what you see in the law of God. The Lord preserved a particular lineage from Adam through Seth, from Noah, through Shem, from Abraham, through Isaac and Jacob and Judah, through the nation. And God set the nation apart and he preserved enough of a remnant in that nation to bring Jesus into the world. And Jesus, not like the nation, not like Moses, not like Noah, not like Adam. Jesus 
fulfilled every single last requirement to accomplish our salvation. Instead of us being required to fulfill the law in order to avoid the judgment of God, Jesus perfectly has already fulfilled every last one of God's law's requirements on our behalf so we could be made members of the family of God by grace alone, through faith alone. So as Christmas approaches, you should see that the celebration that, 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 we, that we have, this celebration that, that we celebrate, I have not got a better word, we celebrate God accomplishing what he promised and promised and promised for thousands of years. Help your family to worship together as we anticipate the joy of the Christmas celebration. Let yourselves anticipate the Savior's second coming, his promised return to finally, forever, set everything right. And if you don't yet know Jesus, I want to urge you this. Turn to Jesus today. There's not a single law you can obey that'll make you right with God. There's no sacrifice you could make that would ever save your soul. Your only hope is to turn away from yourself, to turn away from sin, Entrust your soul to Jesus and Jesus alone, the Savior who did it all for you. You're not saved by doing. You're saved if you trust, believe in Jesus. I urge you, yield your life to Jesus and ask him, Jesus, please save my soul. And then you can thank God for the way God brought us the Savior that he promised and promised from the beginning and even before the beginning. Let's pray. Lord, what a day and what a promise. Lord, I would plead with you that you would help us as a people to rejoice in the promise of the Savior. Help us to see in the law not rules that we need to somehow try to achieve today. We're not physical Israel, we're not in that land. But help us also not to think that those laws don't demonstrate your character. You tell us what you love and what you hate. You tell us what is good and what is offensive. Help us to be a set-apart people to your glory. God, have mercy. That's our prayer. If anyone hears this and doesn't know Jesus, I pray that you will somehow, through this long story, help them find their hearts drawn to a Savior who could fulfill a law we never could. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.